Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Tracy Parker, author of Department Stores and the Black Freedom Movement, Workers, Consumers, and the Civil Rights from 1930 to 1980. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. So I'm an associate professor of African-American history in the W.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, I am a graduate of the Ph.D. program out of history at the University of Chicago, and it's there that I started to think about this topic. Um, This was a topic that started out of simple curiosity, and it blossomed into this intellectual endeavor that subconsciously, I think at the time, was very personal. Um, And so what I mean by that is that I came to this topic because, as many graduate students do, you're bombarded by reading all of these various texts um, by different scholars. And it was there that I started to question the history of consumer capitalism. And as I was reading, I found very little on African-Americans. And so I was trying to figure out where are they, right? If they're not, if they're not here in the early 20th century, why aren't they? Um, and so I went down the rabbit hole and this became really a question of where do I find African-Americans and why are they important to the story that I think I want to tell? You talked about your trips to the mall with your parents. Tell us about that. So, you know, I was as I was doing the research for this topic, I started to reflect on my own personal history with consumer capitalism, with department stores. And department stores becomes key here because department stores were leaders and exemplars of consumer capitalism for much of the 20th century. And in the 1980s, as a child, we spent quite a lot of time in department stores and in the mall. And it was sort of this ritual where every Saturday we would, my mother and I would get up and we sort of do this as a whole family, my mother, my father, myself, my sister. And if there was no dance class, if there was no other extracurricular activities, we would head to the mall and she would sort of start her ritual the same way. We would park at Heck Company, which was a major department store in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. And she would start in the shoe department. She would park right outside the shoe department. We'd start in the shoe department. And she would spend what felt like hours in the shoe department before we started to carry on and go to clothes and children's clothes and handbags and then make our way out to the mall onto the next store, um, which was often just another department store that may have anchored the mall. Now, what can you learn about the culture from studying department stores? So I think department stores right now in our mind, department stores aren't very exciting, 
right? Oftentimes in the news, we're hearing about one department store closing, another one downsizing. But in the early 20th century, department stores were places to see, to see and to be seen. Um, we're talking about stores that are of unprecedented size. Um, they were just opulent and they confronted customers with an astounding array of high quality, stylish merchandise and lavish services. So the idea of a department store in the early 20th century, um, for those that were considered high-end or middle-class department stores, was that these were supposed to be places where white middle-class women in particular could go and spend their entire day. So they offered, under one roof, you could find clothes, you could go to a restaurant, you could purchase your groceries, you could mail things at the store post office, there were hospitals inside, there were beauty shops and barber shops, there was a nursery where women could drop off their clothes, there was, I mean, everything you could possibly think of. And so department stores also, even though they're designed for white middle class women, they they operate under this idea that anyone and everyone is invited to come in and shop. So regardless of race, class, gender, age, country of origin, people were invited to come in to enter and browse and purchase. Um, And so in a way, what department stores did was it enthroned consumption as the route to democracy and citizenship. Um, And so while it does this, right, it's so, department stores are so complicated. And as they're celebrating democracy and giving consumers this very opulent lifestyle that they can purchase, um, department stores were in fact Jim Crow institutions. So this meant that African-Americans early on were only hired in menial jobs, such as as maids or janitors or cooks or elevator operators. Very few are hired in sales or in office work. And if you're a customer, you're welcome to come and shop in many stores. But your mobility is limited and you're often provided unequal, uneven service. And so this meant that African-Americans couldn't return clothes. Um, They found that their shopping experience was often severely constrained by racism. Um, Now, you talked about this lady, Maddie Johnson, and her fight for employment. Tell the audience that story. So Maddie Johnson, this is very early on and what I consider to be sort of the early struggle to integrate department stores um, in the 1910s. Maddie Johnson is, in 1901, she's looking to get hired at a department store in Chicago, in my ear. Um, And so she applies for this sales position, and she is successful in persuading the manager to meet with her just for five minutes. And at the expiration of the five minutes, she's hurried out of the meeting. She then returns to the store a few days later. And once again, she's sort of pushing to get hired for this sales job. And so the manager, as I tell in the book, he's kind of impressed by her persistence. And he gives her this six-week trial. Um, And after the six-week trial period, however, she's fired. Um, and so after the, so once she's fired, she resumes her attacks on the manager. Um, and she went heartedly discouraged. She wrote him this very polite note stating that she wouldn't annoy him any longer. And he immediately sent for her and put her in her old position. Um, and soon thereafter of being rehired, she ends up becoming the head of her department. 
That's a good example of the history of employment, especially in the retail. Um, how did they fight for better wages and better opportunities? So the dep- I would say that campaigns for the depart to integrate the department store when it comes to labor and when it comes to consumption takes place um, over several decades. So in the 1920s, 1930s, what you see are don't buy where you can't work movements. And these are movements that target businesses in black enclaves in urban centers. So in these cases, African-Americans are targeting department stores that are located in their own um, own neighborhoods and demanding that they be hired because they are the main consumer for these stores. By the 1940s, African-Americans have joined forces with the American Friends Service Committee. Um, often it's the National Urban League and the American Friends Service Committee working together to try to persuade department stores, managers to hire African-Americans. And so that campaign actually starts in Philadelphia and then eventually moves on to New York and Chicago and other major cities where African-Americans have migrated to during the Great Migration. By the 1950s and 60s, I you have these lunch counter sit-ins, right, that have been well celebrated in the civil rights um, scholarship. And oftentimes what we forget about these these campaigns is that lunch counter sit-ins are not only trying to integrate the space of the lunch counter, right, that are often located in department stores, but also the work behind the counter. Um, and so, I, you know, we're talking about a lot of these workers in department stores, lunch lunch counters, are hired only to clean up, or they're only allowed to wait on other African Americans, depending on the location. Um, African American protesters during the lunch counter campaign, some are becoming increasingly concerned that it's not just in the space of the lunch counter that they're finding discrimination, that they should also be concerned about the labor and economic discrimination that's going on in department stores. And so by the 1970s, as you see um, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission sort of get its grounding and take off, more and more African-Americans, particularly African-American women, are filing claims against department stores for discriminating against them when it comes to um, securing work in sales or managerial positions. What did Title VII do for the Black retail workers? So this provided them with the legal basis to make claims. Right? This becomes really important. Um, and it becomes important, as I tell in the book, for when it comes to the Sears, Roebuck & Company case, that is a major case that the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission take on in the 1980s. And oftentimes, this is a case that's remembered for its influence or the influence of white um, women's organizations, such as now the National Organization of Women, um, which was predominantly white, um, and pushing against labor discrimination in Sears and Roebuck. But in reality, as I started to dig into the story, I was just blown away by the number of African-American women um, and even some men who were filing these claims against Sears, Roebuck and Company throughout the, the country stating, you know, I work at Sears, but I found out that the white woman next to me is making more money than me. And yet she doesn't do it. Right. I'm, I'm doing more labor or I have 
it's been brought to my attention that I'm never going to be able to become a manager despite working here for X amount of years or despite having this amount of education because I'm African-American, because I'm not only African-American, but also because I'm a woman. And so you see African-Americans starting to make these claims that catches the attention of the National Association for Colored People, the NAACP, and also the National Organization for Women. And they really are some of the foot soldiers behind the Sears Roebuck and um, Company campaign. And it's that campaign that becomes a lawsuit with the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission that forces Sears to enact an affirmative action program. That becomes one of the most extensive affirmative action programs ever instituted by a retail institution. Now, you talk about Dorothea Davis and the W.T. Grant um, store and how she gained Black support. Can you tell the audience about that whole story? So I love the story. Um, Dorothea Davis was a waitress um, at W.T. Grant's in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it's during the Charlotte sit-in that she becomes this major character and very important for understanding um, department store discrimination or discrimination of labor, of white-collar laborers um, in the 1960s. So the campaign starts and the sit-in starts and, you know, these students come in and they're very concerned about integrating the lunch counter. And it's here that they meet Dorothea Davis and they start speaking to not only Dorothea, but other black workers who work behind the counter. So, and I should be clear that at WT Grants, it's a bit different than um, some other um, lunch counters. See, WT Grants had two lunch counters. They had one for white patrons where they served hot food. Um, of, they would serve the food on actual plates, um, uh, actual china. You'd get actual... <laughs> Um, silverware. And then they had a black lunch counter, which was in the basement that served concession-like food, hot dogs, hamburgers, french fries on paper plates, nothing fancy. Um, And the black lunch counter is actually a place where African-Americans in the area would congregate. Um, They would, teachers would hold meetings there. Um, And Dorothea Davis does something really fantastic for these for her Black patrons, when she knew that Black people were going to come to hold their meetings or have a special occasion, she would sort of covertly get the china and use it downstairs in the downstairs lunch counter. Or she would serve them hot foods that weren't concession-type foods. So she's important to the community well before the students. But the students come in in 1960, and they decide they're going to sit in at the lunch counter to integrate the lunch counter like their colleagues in Greensboro and throughout other places in the South. And they start to talk to Dorothea. And they start to hear about what it's like to work at W.T. Grants. And she also is giving them good information on, like, this is when you're, you want to come in, if you want to be the most effective when it comes to, you know, making, making getting your demands made. And they learned from Dorothea about this history and about the experience about being discriminated against um, as a worker, right? She's worked as a waitress for many years, but she's never been able to get employment as a sales worker. So they add this to their list of demands, the students do. And because of this, when they're successful at integrating the lunch counter, what happens quietly, what happens covertly is that Dorothea Davis 
is able to integrate sales work at WT Grants. And so she becomes the first African-American saleswoman at WT Grants. Now, the process of becoming the first is always difficult. Um, when she gets hired, she's actually put in the basement in a defunct department. She's supposed to be selling lamps in a lamp department that really hadn't been working. <laughs> there was no lamp department for years. And once word gets out, right, the students spread the word, the protesters spread the word, they all begin to come to the lamp department and start buying lamps. I mean, we're talking about people don't need lamps. They're just buying lamps because she's down there and they want to show their support. They would take their purchases from other counters. So, you know, women would go, they want to purchase a lipstick. They would get it from the lipstick counter and they would go all the way to the basement and purchase it from Dorothea Davis so she could get the sale. And soon she's the number one sales worker at W.T. Grants. And so it's this beautiful story that exemplifies the way that African-American workers and consumers have historically had this alliance when trying to dismantle discrimination and segregation. Consumption and the Black middle class. What did it mean to purchase items? What did you find there? So, you know, department stores from its very inception had figured out that you could convince consumers that they could buy a middle class lifestyle um, through the purchase of certain goods, right? So the idea was that department stores became sites for self-fashioning, for self-expression, and for human satisfaction. What I found when it came to African-Americans is that for many years, they're excluded. Um, or at least, it, even if they're not excluded, efforts are there to limit their ability to fully enjoy the space of the department store, to fully enjoy the promises of consumer capitalism. And it's through their efforts to integrate this sphere that more and more African-Americans are able to secure jobs in sales and office work. And I think it's hard to imagine now the importance of sales work for the better part of the 20th century. Sales work was considered to be white collar labor up until maybe the 1960s, 1970s. This was work, if you were a sales worker in a department store, that required a degree of education. It required um, you to be trained. Um, it required, um, it offered, you know, even if the pay wasn't that great, it offered some sense of status. Um, it created or affirmed a sense of elevated social position. And so what happens is that not only by integrating the work and integrating consumption, African-Americans are able to secure what is considered to be a modern middle-class status. And what I mean by modern is that this is a class identity grounded in consumer capitalism for which department stores are exemplars, not industrial capitalism that African-Americans had been engaging in for many years, right? So the work of factory work, for example. Home delivery, delivering items to your home. What did you find in the history? So delivering items is very new for department stores. This is the beauty of the department store about catering to its customers in a way that is just um, unprecedented for the time. So, you know, there's these stories that I, I spent a lot of time going through employee newsletters and they would have these stories that were just, you know, they were gripes, they were commit, they were comical in a way, but they would have these stories about these women coming in, primarily white middle-class women who would come in and want everything delivered. 
So there's a story of a woman who just wants a thimble of thread um, sent to her home because she doesn't want to carry it around the store, right? So there's a luxury of having your items delivered to your house. I imagine too that having a department store truck show up to your front door shows your neighbors, right? That you've spent some good money and that you've spent money at a place that delivers good. So this is all about creating impressions and feeling like you are part of this middle-class life. What did you find in terms of the stores in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte, North Carolina, the similarities and the differences there? So I think, you know, this is what I find really interesting about department stores. Department stores, um, in many ways, are so different based on location, right? Um, but they're very similar in their their racial practices. So Washington D.C., I think we often, you know, right now we call we often call it Mid Atlantic. I'm from Baltimore, so this is always. But there's but D.C. and Baltimore are very southern in the way that the civil rights movement unfolds in these cities, right? Segregation, segregation is what we're very um, adamant about racial segregation remaining in place in these cities. In Washington, D.C., there's a, Mary Church Terrell was part of this movement to integrate the tea room at Head Company in downtown Washington. Um, and Again, what they are able to do is cultivate this relationship between workers and consumers um, in order to integrate this space. And that's what you find is similar in Charlotte, North Carolina. That seems to be the really moving force that gets stores to concede to people's demands. It's this working together of African-American workers and consumers who understand themselves to be part of what Michael Dawson calls, who's a political scientist out of the University of Chicago, calls linked fate. They understand that as workers and as consumers, that they must work together if they both want to see success, if they both want to overturn racism, discrimination, segregation. Now, Explain the picture that you have on um, page 67, the Negro staff at Bloomstein. Um, this was really interesting picture uh, in terms of the people who were, who were more likely at that time period to be hired. Yes. So this is, I think this picture says, it does say a lot, doesn't it? Um, during the 1920s, 1930s, in the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work movement in Harlem, this is a really successful movement whereby African Americans decide, just like the slogan says, you're not going to buy at stores where you can't work. Now, Bloomsteins was a department store located in Harlem, which is where the majority of African Americans in New York City lived at the time. Um, and so what they demand is that, and this is during the this occurs during the Great Depression. So they've actually got the falling economic um, condition sort of working in their favor, that they start to withhold their dollars from the store. They start to picket the front of the store. Um, and we're talking about a movement. When you look at the picture, and the picture I should describe is of primarily women who are of fairer complexion. And this was the black staff at Bloomstein's in about 1934. 
This staff is hired as a result of the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work movement. So these were individuals that were hired to work in white collar work, sales and office work. And yet, while you notice that they're a fair complexion, the people who did a lot of the legwork, um, a lot of the protesting, a lot of the organizing are actually of darker complexion. Management and even some protesters or even some organizers in the movement believed that the first to be hired must be fairer skinned because that wouldn't upset the racial status quo of the store. So we're talking about women who were hired, many of whom could have passed if they chose to. This, you know, that what happens there really does anger a lot of African-Americans thereafter because their feeling was that this was a movement that was done by the collective and yet only the people who are going to reap the benefits are actually fairer skinned and many of whom were already part of the middle class. So they, they were the da- sons and daughters of famous jazz musicians, of doctors, of lawyers who had gone to college. These were not the people who were really standing out front day in and day out protesting Bloomstein's department store. Now, tell us about the fair-minded American Stay Out of Hicks leaflet and the picketing there. Can you tell me what you're referring to? Yes, there was a flyer in your book where it talked about um, people staying out of this store and they had a leaflet there and they said, fair-minded Americans stay out of the health department store. Ah, yes. Um, This had to do with a health campaign um, in the 1950s. And as you can see in the front of the um, the front of the flyer is a picture of Mary Church Terrell. And at the time, she's 88 years old. She's the committee chairman um, for the movement to integrate Hex's lunch counter. The great, you know, I find the story of Hex to be fascinating um, because what Hex, what this committee did was find a loophole in local law um, that actually went against the 19, the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson campaign. And so it's in this loophole that they're making a legal claim to integrating lunch counters and they target Hex. Um, this was actually a law and it was an anti-discrimination law from 1872 and 1873. Um, it was a law, these were laws that were passed when the district legislative assembly governed the city and required that all eating places um, all owners of eating places must serve any respectable, well-behaved person, regardless of color, or face $100 fine or forfeiture of their license for one year. So it's with this that they decide to organize the campaign against Hex. Now, Hex has, and that to Hex in D.C. had historically been a place for many African-Americans shot, and yet out of all the departments in the store, the lunch counter was the one place that would not really accept their dollars. When the movement sort of starts to gain momentum, Hex, fearing for any bad publicity, not wanting any more protests, decides to give protesters a small uh, a small high table for them to sort of eat their food at. I mean, it's a very small high table, maybe something that maybe only one or two people could fit at. And yet they remain, um, really, the protesters remain 
really devoted to the movement and they continue until African-Americans are able to eat at that lunch counter. Now, what is the overall message you would like your readers to leave with once they finish your book? I think it's it's a couple of things. I think one is that there's this relationship between the local and national movement. Um, and by movement, I mean the civil rights movement. Overwhelmingly, we remember the civil rights movement as being attentive to economic and labor discrimination in the late 1960s. Um, but in actuality, when we take a look at these local movements, as exemplified through these different department store campaigns and protests, we find that local African-Americans have been long concerned about economic discrimination and labor and labor discrimination, right? And they're concerned about it and attend to it for decades. And so in many ways, what, what I want readers to get away, get an understanding for are the economic dimensions, the economic agenda of the civil rights movement, that the movement's not simply a single attack on Jim Crow, right? That in fact, it is trying to be a more broad-based critique on racial capitalism. And within that, as African-Americans are making these gains, what we see is the emergence of a modern Black middle class in the mid and late 20th century, one that many of us are reaping the benefits from. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you're going to be working on? So right now I'm working on a book that is tentatively titled Beyond Loving, Love, Sex, and Marriage in the Black Freedom Movement. And so what I'm I'm looking at how civil rights activists and Black power activists have created families, created relationships, how these relationships were impacted by the movement, how these relationships impacted the movement, um, and how they might be a model for understanding the dynamics of African-American life and family in the mid to late 20th century. Well, we'll be looking forward to that book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.